0: It's good to be with you. Welcome to 2020. I trust that you have better vision this year than you did last year. There's your joke for the morning. Um, For those of you who didn't get it, we'll talk later. (laughs) Uh, I want to invite you to grab a Bible nearby you and turn in your Bibles to the book of James this morning. Uh, We're going to be spending a little bit of time in James and and then take a couple different ventures into other portions of Scripture. Uh, But if you don't have a Bible, we have some at the back, and you can feel free to get up right now and go get one. If you don't own a Bible, you may take that with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, We believe very strongly um, that we are called to be people of God's Word, people of the text. And the more that we read it, the more that we study it, the more God changes our lives. That's why we open the scriptures, and that's why we gather this morning. Um, That is also why next week we're going to be having a dramatic monologue of the book of James. One of the very helpful things when it comes to studying a book is to read it in its entirety. And so we're going to experience that together next week. But if you want to get a jump start this week, you can read the book of James in your study. uh, Or just begin with James 1 this week if you want to camp out there in addition to other reading that you might be doing. So, um, like I said, great to be with you. We're going to launch in uh, Before we launch in, I just want to reiterate something uh, Pastor Tom said. Uh, on the 19th, we're going to be having our first focus. It is our intention to have four of these a year and we already have them on the calendar. We'll let you know those dates in the coming weeks here. Um, But these are times where we can share leadership updates, where we can pray together, where we can become of one mind and one heart about what God is wanting to to do in and through us. And so, really encourage you whether you're a regular tender, maybe it's your first day here, we encourage you to join us for that. It'll be at the conclusion of our service on the 19th. Uh, But those are important times within the life of our church. So join us for that. Um, Before we read from the text, would you please stand with me? We're going to say the Shema together. A new year, a new chance to affirm that the Lord is our God together. So I, I believe we have this up there. Say this with me, please. Make this a prayer for our life and for our year today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And just in the quietness of this moment, if you'd close your eyes and continue that prayer to God and and maybe pray something like, God, would you show me yourself in this next year? And Father, would you show me who I am in light of who you are? Our Father and our King, we come humbly this morning. We come very dependent upon you for everything. Even the air and the breath we breathe is a gift from your hand, and we say thank you. And as we begin a new year together, God, we want to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, all of our might. And because we love you, we love our neighbor as ourself. And God, we recognize that we cannot do this in our own power. So God, equip us and empower us by your spirit to be this kind of a person. Thank you, God, for meeting us here with your grace, giving us the power to live out the word of God. Lord, show us the things in the areas of our life that need to change today so that we might love you more deeply. We pray in the name of Jesus. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. So the book of James. Why are we going to study the book of James? Well, the book of James is an important book within the New Testament. I mean, all, all the books are important. Uh, but James is a very, very practical book. And months ago, as pastors, we began talking about what would it look like to study the book of James. Be, because when we talk about this book, it's a book that marries together both theology and practice. Uh, Perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, there's a whole bunch of imperative commands of do this, of don't do this. Here's how you should act. It, it, it takes faith and it takes theology, studying about God and it says, here's how you live this out. And so the book of James is very, very practical, immensely practical. In fact, he says in, in chapter one, verse 22, he says, be hearers of the word, or be doers of the word, not hearers only. And so we're going to be looking at these wisdom principles and this marrying together of faith and action. And this is often a challenge for us. And here's why I think one of the reasons it's a challenge. Um, is because a lot of times we look at, here's what I must do, here's what I must do, here's what I must do, and life becomes about doing. And if we're not really careful, we forget that first we must be before we can do. Here's what I mean by that. What we do, what we do does not determine who we are. For the believer, for the follower of Jesus, who we are must always be the first step of of guiding us towards this path of what we must do. Does that make sense? Reformers, theologians throughout all the ages have struggled with James because they wonder how can we put together this marrying of faith in action? You know, he says, you, 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 show me, you show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And people, for example, like Martin Luther, really struggled with this because when they come to um, rich doctrines like justification by faith through grace alone, they go, How do we put these two together? But if we understand this from from an Eastern mindset, an an ancient Jewish mindset, we we quickly come to the point of saying, first we have to be before we can then walk it out. And one of the things that we're gonna look at here, we're, we're gonna study really just the first verse this morning and take some rabbit trails. But the first verse, if you look with me, says this. It says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greetings, all right? For the book of James, that's all we're going to look at today. Because there's a couple things I want us to see, and it comes down to this principle of we have to learn how to be. Be what? Be child of God before we can learn what it means then to walk out the principles of James as a child of God. If we get the order wrong, pretty quickly we, we, we mess up in our minds and in our hearts the purpose of the gospel, the gospel has come to us because we cannot save ourselves, because we cannot make ourselves holy, because we can't walk out all of this, this stuff, all this teaching, all this direction without God's help. And so I want to set this, this uh, straight and set this as a, a groundwork for the remaining parts of our study because we're going to hit a lot of stuff. It's going to talk about the mouth and how we speak to one another. It's going to talk about um, hearing and doing. He's going to talk about effective prayer. He's going to talk about how you treat other people and showing preference and why you shouldn't do that. But before we talk about the do this, don't do this, we have to first recognize that James is writing this from a position of being a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. And so uh, a couple of different, um, a couple of just, informative things as we study the book of James. Uh, first of all, it's written by James. Uh, we, it's, a, it's a letter. It's a New Testament letter. And we know it's a letter because it has a from and it has a to and it has a greeting. And it's from James. In Greek, uh, it's actually the word Iakobus, and Iakobus is actually translated Jacob, but through all the years of language transition and, and such, it has been anglicized to James, and so we're going to call him James, even though his Greek name is Iakobus, even though his Hebrew name is, is Jacob, we're going to call him James because it'll get really confusing if we don't. Um, so, so James, and he's, he's writing, this is probably one of, if not the earliest letter of the New Testament, He's writing, and and uh, he's writing to an audience, and he describes them as the twelve tribes in the dispersion. All right, who are the twelve tribes in the dispersion? Well, one of the things we need to remember, and this kind of goes back to our Acts study some time ago, in Acts chapter eight, um, the the church is gathered in Jerusalem, followers of Jesus who are pretty much all Jewish they're gathered in Jerusalem and there's persecution that breaks out again against them because of their faith in Jesus and because of this persecution they scatter they, they, they go out throughout the land and, and they go different ways and as they go they proclaim the Word of the Lord they proclaim what Jesus has done and and it's these people to whom James is writing the church at this time is not really Gentile at all. He's writing to Jewish believers in the Messiah Jesus. And so he puts this together. He says, James, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. He's, He's marking himself. I'm not just a Jew. I'm a Jew who believes that Jesus is our Messiah, that he died and that he rose again he's planting himself in that refrain of people. And so he's writing to people who have experienced persecution, who are being moved out of what they've called home, and he's writing to them and he's saying, here's how I want you to act. Your location may have changed, difficulty may have come upon you, but here's how you are to act. Um, James writes, And he begins this a very interesting way. Now, if you were writing a letter to someone, uh, you might give some sort of indication of who you are. For example, um, if you're a doctor, and you're writing a letter, you're sending a letter out to your patients, you're probably gonna put doctor so-and-so, and then you might put you know, like a DDS or MD or DO or something at the end to show what your credential is. If you're a teacher, you know, kids, you may have had a, a teacher write you a card or write a letter home, or parents, you may have received that. You may have gone, this is from Miss So-and-so, or Mr. So-and-so, or Mrs. So-and-so, first grade teacher. They're giving you some context of who they are. Um, you might send out a, a piece of mail, like sometimes I send out things that have to be more formal, Um, because it's a recommendation letter for adoption. I've written those before. Or it's a recommendation letter for a student going to university. And so I'll put Pastor Jeremy Cobb, you know, First Baptist Church, Zealand, so that they have an idea of who I am, where I am, what I'm about. Um, James does that for us in this letter. He does it in a very poignant way. James, it says, a slave of God... And of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave of God. Yours might say servant of God, or it might say bond servant of God. Um, it's the word in Greek, doulos. Can you say doulos? doulos? Doulos, doulos means this in Greek. It is one who is solely committed to another, solely committed to another. They are duty bound only to their masters or owners, or those to whom total allegiance is pledged. And so James is, is, is saying essentially, I, I am solely committed to God and to the Lord Jesus. I am duty bound only to him, and my only allegiance is in him. And he wants his hearers to know this at the beginning. This is the, the framework for everything that he's going to lay. I am solely committed to the Lord Jesus, He has come to faith in Jesus, believes that Jesus is the only way to God the Father, as Jesus teaches in the book of John and other places, and and he wants them to know, this is my heart, this is who I am, this is my identity. Now, it's interesting that James would do that, because if we were to write a letter, you might use some sort of authority, or you might use some sort of um, muscle to help make your case. Um, James is uh, an important early church leader. We see in the in the book of Acts, chapter fifteen, he is a major player in the decision in Acts chapter fifteen between Jews and Gentiles. He he appears before that. Peter shows him great respect a couple of chapters earlier. But one of the things that he does not drop, James, in his writing, is he doesn't say, "Hey, I'm James. I'm the leader at the church in Jerusalem." I have an important standing with the apostles. He doesn't even drop this one. He he's one of the few people in the world at that time and ever to say, This is James, I'm Jesus' brother. Right? This is likely, most scholars believe that this is Jesus, this is Jesus' half-brother. He doesn't drop that. He doesn't say, hey, I grew up with this guy, his name is Jesus, you might know him. We went way back. He says, James, I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus. I am solely committed to him and to him alone. I am duty bound only to him as my owner and as my master. I only have one allegiance in this whole world and that is to God, the Lord Jesus. And by saying this, James places Limits on his life. James may have been a husband. I don't know whether he was or not, but even if he was a husband, his first allegiance was to the Lord. He may have been a dad. It's a godly thing, but his first allegiance is to the Lord because he's a slave of God. He, he may have, well, he was uh, d- dwelt in Jerusalem, which is occupied under Rome, and so he's under Roman rule in, in some regards, but his first allegiance is not to Rome or to the priests or to the elders or anything like that. His first allegiance is to the Lord. No matter, them, no matter the circumstance, he defines his life most importantly with relationship to God. In every decision he makes, it's how do I honor Christ in this? How do I follow God in this? And so to be a slave of God or to be a servant of God begins with this understanding. When you're a slave or servant of God, you're solely committed to Him. Which means every part of your life, whether you're a mom or you're a dad or you're an employee, whatever you do first comes back to I I have a relationship with the God of the universe through his son Jesus, and that defines everything else in my sphere. Does it make sense? Good, I see some heads nodding. Um, Now, it's not the first time that the phrase servant of the Lord is used. Um, Turn with me, please, if you'd like to, uh, to Numbers chapter 12. Um, One of the ways that the title servant of the Lord is used throughout the Bible, it's used in reference to a couple of people, but probably the most notable one is Moses. Now, Moses is an important figure, as many of you know, within the history of Israel. Um, for the first part of Moses' life, to just kind of give a recap, or for those of you who are not familiar, this kind of sets the, sets the plane for you. Um, the first 40 years or so of Moses' life, he grows up, he, he's born a Hebrew, but through a remarkable saving uh, of, of God, he ends up in growing up in Pharaoh's house. He ends up growing up in the world's superpower's house. Like, uh, Egypt is the place to be this time of the history. And so, he grows up with power and prestige and all this kind of stuff. He ends up killing an Egyptian because he sees the Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. So, he, he recognizes that he's Hebrew. He recognizes that those are his people. It angers him. He flees Egypt, because of the wrath of Pharaoh, he finds himself in a wilderness for several, several years tending sheep. It's while he's tending sheep, he's out in the wilderness, God meets him in this... uh, it, by, by this bush that's burning but doesn't burn up, catches his eye, he goes over there, has an encounter with God, and God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do for the remaining 40 years or so of your life. I want you to go back to Egypt, back to the place where, you know, you left, uh, and, and I want you to lead my people out. And I want you to take them out from slavery, and I want you to take them into a good and spacious land that I am going to give to you. And so, the latter part of Moses' life is, is, um, is one of leading people, a lot of people, and it's a hard life. You know, so sometimes they say it can be lonely at the top. Well, for Moses, it could have been really, really lonely, because no sooner do they get out of Egypt, the people start complaining, and they complain about this, and they complain about that, oh, food, oh, water, What are we going to do? I mean, I know God saved us from this, but will he save us from this? And so, time after time, after time, after time, not every time, but most times, when the people complain to Moses, Moses has a default response, and that is he goes to God. He goes to God. And this is one of those times that he goes to God. And, and it's a special kind of complaining. Look with me, please, Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. Now, Moses, or Aaron and Miriam are two important people. Uh, Aaron is the leader of... Um, of the people who were, uh, the the Levites and, and the priests who cared for the ministry of the Lord in the tabernacle. He's also Moses' older brother, all right? Miriam is Moses' sister, and she had an important part in leading the congregation of Israel in worship. We see that in a couple different spots. But not only do they complain, they're his flesh and blood, and they complain, and they complain that Moses has this special relationship with the Lord, and notice with me verse 3. It says, Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. And so suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, you three come out of the tent, out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. The Lord descended in a pillar of cloud stood at the entrance to the tent, and summoned Aaron and Miriam. This is the divine principal's office, if you will. And when the two of them came forward, he says this to them. He says, listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. Prophets were held up pretty high in this time. I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. A couple of important things about this passage. Number one, Moses is humble, is what the text tells us. Moses does not rebuke his brother and sister. He lets God rebuke them the way God wants to rebuke them. Or maybe not rebuke them, maybe gently chastise them or gently move them into a proper understanding from God's perspective. But he also does this. He calls Moses his servant. If you keep reading throughout the rest of the Torah, you'll find my servant Moses, my servant Moses, the servant of the Lord. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Even when he dies, it says Moses, the servant of the Lord. And this is a high and lofty title for someone. But he says, he's my servant. I speak with him, not in dreams, not in visions, directly, openly, not in riddles, because he sees the form of the Lord. And in other words, Moses experienced something in his life that other people didn't experience. He met with God and he saw God face to face. And you know, just as an aside, I think that's one of the reasons why he's the most humble person at this time. Because when you and I or if anyone stands face to face before God, We probably have a very similar response to what Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter six when he says, woe to me, I am undone. Because when you look at God, you recognize how not God you are. You recognize how your speech doesn't characterize God's speech sometimes. Moses saw God face to face and he's called God's servant and here's what I want you to understand. Being a servant of God, James, servant of God, slave of God and of the Lord Jesus. Being a servant of God being, is being solely committed to him, living out of his teaching. It, all these things require one essential component in life, and that is face-to-face meeting with God. There's no other substitution, because God alone is the one who sets what is holy, who, what is right, who gives us direction. And if we try to replace meeting with God with something else, we will begin to mirror that which we look at. Now, in the words of Jesus, and we're gonna go to John chapter 15 now. In the words of Jesus, it might be said this way. In John chapter 15, he's gonna say the phrase, abide with me, all right so James servant of God all about being devoted to Jesus Moses meets God face to face regularly not always perfectly but regularly and he is God's servant Jesus in John chapter 15 some says some amazing things and calls us into a certain kind of living that I want to talk about for just a few minutes here before we move to communion in John chapter 15, Jesus says this, and, and we should set the context. Um, they have just celebrated the Passover. Judas has already left. Betrayal is coming Jesus' way. Uh, it, over the course of the next few days, he's gonna finish some teaching here. He's going to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He's going to be betrayed, arrested, tried, found guilty, quote unquote, and then he is going to go to the cross and he's going to die. That's the next several days of Jesus, next few days of Jesus' life. And so what Jesus says here, he's not gonna waste his time, he's not gonna waste his words, and he says this. He says, I am, in John 15, verse one, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper. True vine here. Vines were, all over the place in ancient Israel. And many times in the Bible, um, vine uh, phrases are used to describe Israel. Oftentimes, in fact, I think almost all times, they're used in a negative connotation because the vine Israel doesn't perfectly follow what the gardener, the father, wants. You look at that, you can look at it sometime if you want in Isaiah chapter five where, where Israel is compared to as being a, a vine that is growing out of control. They're, they're a vine that's not producing the kind of fruit God wants. They, they deprive people of justice. They resort to taking bribes. It's all about them instead of what God wants for them. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm the one who, who's going to fulfill God's expectations for the vine and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, or he lifts up. It's the word row there. It can mean both. It It can mean to remove, to lift up, or to take away. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean, he tells his disciples, because of the word I've spoken to you. And then he's going to say a word, and he's going to say it nine times. All right? See if you catch it. Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers, They gather them, they throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you remain in me, in my words, remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit, and you prove to be my disciples. As the fathers loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. If I counted right, it's nine times. And what's the word? Remain. It could also be translated abide. It could also be translated stay. Depending on the context, it can, it can mean to live or to dwell or to lodge. Jesus begins this passage talking about the vine, and then he begins this parable of saying, if you remain in me, the vine, and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Fruit is a very important thing for Jesus. In fact, in verse 8, it says, My Father is glorified by this that you produce much fruit and you prove to be my disciples. Fruit here is is a description of what Jesus' followers will be about, what they will do. It's much like what we're going to talk about with James. When we talk about the tongue and we talk about faith and we talk about um, actions and how we treat others and how we handle money, fruit are those things that come about through a life that is lived to God's glory. It's things that people see and people experience. And when they experience them, it's not that they're experiencing them for, for our sake, they're experiencing them and they're saying, wow, bless the Lord. Because the idea of fruit is it's never for the branch. Fruit is always for the glory of the Father and for the benefit of those around. But Jesus makes some very strong claims about fruit here. He, he says, you cannot bear fruit on your own. You can only do so if you remain connected to the vine. The cornerstone, Jesus is saying here, of being a servant of God and producing spiritual fruit is this life of what it means to abide in Christ. Um, What does it mean then to abide? Uh, 1 John chapter three, you don't need to turn there, but it talks about how an abiding relationship with Christ begins by confessing that Jesus is God. Having an abiding relationship begins with this truth, by by understanding that you and I are sinners and that it's only by coming to the Son that we can come to the Father. Why? Because Jesus died and he rose again for our sins, to, to bring us relationship with God. And so as we seek to abide, we become about God, we become about following his teaching, living out his commands. In abiding, much like fruit, is a process. Do we have any gardeners in the room? Couple of you, okay. You know a lot more about this stuff than I do. But but gardening or vineyard keeping, in specific, it is an art form. I, I watched just for fun this week to, to help give me some different eyes to see, I guess. Uh, I watched uh, uh, some documentaries about vineyards. I think my kids were bored, but um, it was very, very interesting. All the things that go into having good fruit at the end that, that can be used for something. Um, abiding is a process. Vines and vineyards were one of, the, one of three very important crops in the ancient world, and one of the most uh, difficult ones to care for, because as vines go, um, they they can grow all sorts of ways. You you have a vine over here, and then branches start going off, and before you know it, they're going places you didn't want them to go. Uh, If they're too close to the ground, you can have problems. You you can have excessive dew that comes on them, and it might rot the fruit. If you have too many leaves, the proper sunlight can't get to where it needs to go in order to maximize the fruit. the, the plant might fall victim to fungus, which means that the fruit you can't eat. Uh, it, if the connection with the vine is constricted in any way, a branch will wither, and it won't produce what you want it to produce. We've all, maybe maybe most of us, have gone past those apple trees, because uh, that's our context, where, where the apples are really small, and you wouldn't want to eat them because they haven't been well cared for, and they haven't been properly watered, properly groomed, anything like that. It's like that with vines. You have to take care of them. Jesus says, I'm the vine. I'm, I'm the source of life for all of these branches, is what he's saying. And he says, my father is the vineyard keeper, or my father is the gardener. Um, I have a photo for you. Um, here is a photo. This is taken around the turn of the century, the, ni- the ni- early 1900s, and this is an ancient vineyard. So you'll see how there's there's a, a a vine that comes up, and then there's shoots that come off of here. And what he's doing is he's he's taking a look at that tree or or that vine, and he's maximizing. What needs to change here? Does something need to come up in order to produce a better harvest at the end of the year? Does something need to be pruned in order to maximize what this vine needs to be? Healthy vines have regular attention from the gardener. Now, it may not be regular, um, you know, major cuttings or anything like that, but as a vine goes They're always looked after by a good gardener if they're going to produce great fruit. A gardener wisely knows when branches must be lifted from the ground. They know when branches are wasting energy and need to be pruned so that they can bear more fruit. A good gardener cares about the vine, cares about the branches in the immediate time, but they also care about them for the next season and the next season and the next season because this is a source of life. It's also a source of profit for, um, for his family. And so what I want to kind of help you see is that abiding with Christ begins with a confession. You, you come into Christ by, by believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has died and he's rose again for your sins, but then part of life, in fact all of life from then on, is being attached into the vine In learning out what it means to have your daily supply met and cared for by the vine and by the gardener. If we were to think back upon our years of following Jesus, we could likely find seasons in which there were times where we didn't have as close of a relationship with God. And there's reasons for that oftentimes. Sometimes it's because we have stopped reading God's word and letting it be an active part of our life. Sometimes it's because our prayer life has dwindled. We, we, we have let other things creep in. We haven't pursued it. Sometimes we become so busy and so preoccupied thinking that, oh, over there is where I will receive the nourishment I need for today. or Over there, that's where I can find the need, the, the fulfillment for that need. Jesus calls his disciples to a very important point for their life going forward. As he's lived with them, as he's dwelt with them for the past three years, he says, remain in me. Remain in me. And I in you, and you will bear much fruit. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's kind of like what Paul says in Philippians. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Here, Jesus is saying the same thing, just a different way. He says, you want to try and do something apart from me? Sorry, anything that is lasting, anything that is beneficial will never be done apart from me. Jesus cares about the kind of fruit that is produced. I went to Meyer this morning and got some fantastic grapes with the other four people who were there at the time I went. Um, God cares about the the fruit that comes from our lives. He cares how much juice is in it and the sugar content. He, He cares because he knows that there's people around us who are going to experience the fruit of our lives And if they experience a a grape, I don't have one here, I don't think, go Meyer. good job. Uh, If we experience one of those little small grapes that you just kind of throw off to the side because no one wants to eat them, um, you, you leave a little sad. He wants you to experience something much more wholesome, something much more satisfying. He cares about the fruit. But while he cares about the fruit, He cares about his relationship with you more because he knows that the only way that fruit is going to come from your life is if you remain connected to the vine. If the branch that these grapes were on had been severed or had been cut off or something like that, you would not have fruit. I would not have fruit in my hands right now. I wouldn't be able to enjoy this after the service. I won't eat it all. Jesus cares about meeting with you daily. He cares about knowing you. I mean, he already knows you, but he cares about you knowing him and developing a relationship through prayer, through the reading of his word, through the walking out of his commands. Because when you and I do that, we bear much fruit. And we find that life is a whole lot more enjoyable when we've been doing the thing God made for us to do. Uh, a, couple, a couple weeks ago I was reading a book um, by Andrew Murray. He's a writer on spiritual things from the nineteenth, 20th century, early 20th century. And, and he wrote this. And he's talking about John 15. And I, I just wanted to read it to you. Um, this is a paraphrase of Jesus' words to us uh, that he put together. Think, soul, how completely I belong to you. I've joined myself inseparably to you. All fullness and fatness of the vine are yours indeed. Now, once you are in me, be assured that all I have is wholly yours. It is my interest and my honor to have you be a fruitful branch. Only abide in me. You are weak, but I am strong. You are poor, but I am rich. Only abide in me. Yield yourself wholly to my teaching and rule. Simply trust my love my grace, my promises. Only believe, I'm wholly yours. I'm the vine, you are the branch. Abide in me. This is the theme we're gonna come back to several times, I think, believe, I believe throughout the course of the next year. But God calls us to abide in him, and so I have three questions for you as we close, and then we're gonna to move to communion. The first one's this, are you connected to the vine? Do you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus? And if you don't, you can have one today by believing that Jesus died and he rose again to pay for your sin, to make you right with God. Your standing with God is not based upon what you can do or what you have done. Because if we go back and we look at the things we have done, we get really bad fruit. Actually, we get no fruit at all. You can come to faith in Jesus even now. Are you connected to the vine? Second question is this Are, are you abiding in Christ today? Coming on the back end of a, um, of a busy holiday break, perhaps for most of us, are, are you abiding in Christ today? You know, tomorrow, you can ask yourself the same question Am I abiding in Christ today? One of the ways and tests that you will know that you're abiding in Christ is you'll begin to more and more see the fruit of God at work in your life. Fruit like love and joy and peace, patience. Fruit like prayerfulness. Fruit that looks a whole lot more like Jesus, like joy in, in those things. Are you reading the scripture? Is prayer a part of your life? Are you a part of relationships that help move you towards God? Are you connected to the vine? Are you abiding in Christ? Do you have a growing and intimate walk with Jesus? The third question is this Are there areas in your life that God may want to lift up or to remove some roughage on the end or to prune in order that you might bear more fruit? We only touched on this passage. One of the things that astounds me is he says, "My father' is the gardener. We trust a good gardener. Gardening is difficult. Gardening well is even more difficult, because it takes skill. It takes knowledge. It takes wisdom to know what happens if this, if this, if this. The father is a good gardener. Every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit he removes and every branch in me that doesn't produce the fruit that could be more fruit he prunes are there areas in your spiritual life that god wants to prune today as you come to the new year are there new priorities that god wants you to pursue as a church the priority that we want to pursue is we want to know christ we want to be servants or slaves of God, doulos of God. So that as we walk, we, we walk not in our own strength, but we walk in the strength of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. Because if it's the Holy Spirit in us that is producing fruit, it's a signal that we're abiding. And it's a signal that we're providing something that is rich and meaningful to our community and also that brings glory to God. So, three questions there. We're gonna move to communion right now. And I wanna invite our worship team to come forward and people who are helping us serve communion to come forward as well. It's important that we come to communion today because communion reminds us of what Christ has done for us. Um, just before uh, Jesus has this conversation with his disciples, they have celebrated communion. They've celebrated Um. The redemption from slavery in Egypt is what Passover is, and that's the origins of communion. Um, Jesus says, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim what I have done for you until I come again. And so we're going to celebrate this morning, and and we're going to do so out of thankfulness for what God has done for us. But before we take of the bread and of the cup, I want to give you just a moment here to, to pray to God and to say, God... Where's there sin in my life that I need to repent of? God, where are there things in my life that you want to prune or you want to clip from me that, that you want so that I can be a more fruit-bearing branch? Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at FBCZealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.